you would please stand uh, and open your Bibles up to Philippians uh, chapter 3. We'll be reading the whole chapter this morning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many are as, as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. You may be seated. The words... To the song we just sang, Our True in Our Life, that we would rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. We'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold or men's applause. We'd rather have Jesus than have riches and property. 
We'd rather have Jesus than fame, popularity. Father, I pray that we would be about pursuing you in this life as we look forward to the life yet to come. We thank you this morning for the gift of your son. We thank you for your word, which is true all of the time. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would take your word, that you would plant it deep within us, you would shape us and and make us more like your son. Help us, Lord, to this morning to discern your value. As we look at this passage of scripture, may we come to see, as Paul saw in his life, the value of gaining Christ, of knowing Christ, of walking with Christ. May we come to see that our losses pale in comparison with your gain. May our greatest joy be found in knowing Jesus. May it be that our lives are spent for you, God. And I do pray that our lives, and not just our words, but our lives would reflect the words in the song we just sang. Our lives would speak to others. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a poem written by C.T. Studd, preacher, that I believe ties in well with this passage we're looking at here in Philippians 3. I'd like to read a few of the stanzas here up front, and we'll come back later and read a few more of the stanzas to this particular poem. The title, I believe, at least from what I've been able to gather, is Only one life will soon be passed. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life The still small voice gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score. When self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ 
will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, Jesus is speaking in Luke's gospel in chapter 29, and he says these words in verses 23 through 25. He's saying to them all, he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. There's a whole lot of people, just to push pause on this verse, there's a whole lot of people that want to define and come up with what is this cross, right? That we're supposed to carry daily. While Jesus in this particular passage doesn't necessarily tell us exactly or define for us what that is, I do believe that by the very nature of the description, we can say that this cross, whatever it may be, entails some reference to suffering in this life. Hardship. Difficulty. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, Jesus says, will save it. And then he gets to kind of the result of the conclusion of this by asking a question. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? What what profit? We're saying, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Houses, riches, fame, popularity, all the stuff the world's clamoring after. I believe Jesus asks the question, what profit is it to gain all of this stuff if you don't know Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, all this other stuff's going to burn up. There's a chorus we sing a lot in our home, we, but you better have Jesus. You better have Jesus. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. Continuing in Luke's gospel, I found Luke's gospel to be very helpful here, uh, centering this passage of scripture in Philippians 3, Luke 14. 33, again, speaking of uh, following after Jesus. He's talking about the cost involved, right? And at the end of Luke 14, verse 33, he says, Jesus does, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, following Jesus is not intended to be a part-time proposition. Following Jesus, being a disciple, a student, a learner, a follower of him, 
means that the stuff I hold in my hand here is not held on to too tightly. That we walk around with an open hand, so to speak. Chris referenced Job earlier today. Naked I came from the womb, naked I depart. The Lord gives, the Lord what? Takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Following Jesus means all things at my disposal are subject to inspection and inquiry from the King of Kings at all times. Not when I feel like it. Still reminded in this of the of the day in the Crusades and the Holy Wars when they were hiring mercenaries. You probably heard the story. But in order for them to hire these mercenaries to come and fight for them, the first thing, one of the things they did initially was they made sure that they baptized them. Kind of interesting. Well, as these mercenaries would get baptized, they'd go under the water, everything except their sword. And it's a reminder, isn't it, of how often in our lives we're willing to give the Lord compartments. I'll give you this, Lord. But Lord, I don't know, but I'm, I, I need to, this one's blocked. You know, you, you, you put a curtain over certain compartments. This one's, this one is, uh, do not enter, Lord. Following Jesus means that all things, all compartments, if you will, of my life are at his disposal, are given to him for inquiry. That's what I love about 139, Psalm 139. It's like an examination, isn't it? See if there's anything wicked in me, Lord. Test me, try me. How often do we run that scan before the Lord? How, how willing are we to lay our, ourselves down before the Lord daily? Asking of Him, Lord, what is it in my life? How might I use you? How might I work for you and serve you in such a way that would bring you greater honor and glory this day? Lord, is there something in me that needs to be repented of? Is there something in my life that needs to get right with you? It's called transparency before the Lord. Honesty. Hey, let's remember, he already knows our heart. We're not fooling him. Remember, God cannot be mocked. (laughs) Stuff isn't a stumbling block for the disciple of Jesus. And as we sang this morning already, it's in Christ alone that the follower of Jesus is found. This disciple, this follower, denies self, carries his cross daily, follows Jesus. It's one of the reasons I love and has a, have a, as a life verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself, ought himself. In other words, he's now under obligation ought himself also to walk as Christ walked. 
And when we read 1 John, we see how Christ walked. He walked in the light, just as his father is light. Christ walked in the light. And we as followers of Jesus are called to do the very same thing. A disciple recognizes the brevity of life. We're here for a while. We're gone. A disciple of Jesus stewards each day as unto the Lord. As we look at Philippians 3, and we think about the big idea of this passage. Here's the big idea. I believe that the, the central verse in this, these 1 through 11 we'll be looking at this morning. I think the central verse is found in verse 7. Okay? Central idea. But the big idea, gaining Christ far surpasses loss. Gaining Christ far surpasses loss. There's going to be this terminology we see in the passage. Uh, commercial term, accounting terms of gaining and losing. A gain and a loss. For those of you who are accounting math people, this will probably connect to you. Profit, loss, right? He's talking about this, especially as we turn the corner into verse 7. Gaining Christ far surpasses any loss. What I gain in Jesus is weighted greater than any loss I'll ever have. If my gain in Christ far surpasses any and all losses I might incur in this life here on earth, then it's imperative I come to know this Jesus as Lord and Savior. If, if, if he's as important as what the Bible says he is, and by the way, I believe he is, if he's that important, I want to make sure I gain Christ. I want to make sure that I am found in him. To use this profit loss terminology, I am always going to have a deficit. I'm always going to be in the, the negative. For you accounting people, the, I, I think those negative numbers are oftentimes in red, aren't they? In the red, I show up in the red. I'm always going to be there if I have a bunch of stuff, a great list of accolades, degrees, etc., and yet have not Christ in my life. When Christ isn't in my life, There's going to be the negative. There's going to be the deficit. Always will be, always will be. And what's interesting is that there are a whole lot of people who think life right now is pretty good because they have all this stuff. But you and I have heard the stories of those people. And at some point in their life, the bottom drops out, doesn't it? That portfolio they were relying on hits bottom when the stock market crashes. Now what? Someone that they love, they're no longer here. 
And they've depended upon this loved one for so long. Now what? This job that was providing all of their income has now been taken. The economy has, has taken a nosedive. Now what? You see, when the bottom falls out for, for people who do not have Christ, there is nothing there. It's, it's just as the Bible says. It's, it's a group of people who are without hope. But I believe Paul is advocating and speaking to us this morning from Philippians 3. And he's going to show even from his own life, and we'll see this here, of what he came and what he was enabled to see about this prophet loss in Christ. And what his life before Christ was and how the Lord changed all of that. So the question really comes as we look at the passage and as we have this big idea of gaining Christ far surpasses any loss. question I'd like you to ask yourself this morning, and I, and I realize at some level I'm preaching to the choir. I do think this is a question we all need to ask ourselves, though. Is Christ worth it? Is he worth it? Is he worth gaining Is he needful in my life for today? For today. I think Paul is helping us see what he was enabled to see through the grace of God working in his life. Paul is telling us this morning from the passage, gain Christ, live for Christ, live for the sake of his name. Give it all you got for Jesus. I believe he's telling us when you gain Christ, you gain the one person who holds value, listen, for this life and the life to come. Remember, this is the Jesus who holds the keys of death and Hades. Remember that, Revelation 1? Perhaps we're accustomed to hearing all of the heavenly benefits of life with Christ. And those are true. And those are good. And we sing about them quite often. What a day of rejoicing it will be. I believe Paul here in Philippians 3, though, is, is trying to help us see the significance of gaining Christ for this life. The life that's going on right now in real time. I believe Paul is telling us in this text that gaining Christ is not something we're called to simply for the sake of entry into heaven. It's not punching a ticket just to get to heaven. I think what Paul's telling us here this morning is intended to help us right now. How, how do we live this life in Christ right now? Only what's done for Christ will last. 
all else is going to burn up. Are you building on wood, straw, stubble, hay? Is there a desire to be a vessel of honor for the Lord Jesus Christ? To be useful for your master? I think that's some of what Paul's getting at here. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. His worth never changes. We sang that this morning. Where our worth should be. Our boast where it should be. You see, the Lord's value never decreases. The stock market kind of goes... And really, the general pattern of things in this world fluctuate. They're uncertain. They're going to pass away. Things are going to decrease in their value. But I want to tell you this morning, church, that our Lord Jesus Christ, His worth, His value never changes. All the more reason to gain Christ. Gain Christ. Gaining Christ far surpasses any loss. And because his worth and his value never changes, I believe this is why the Bible then refers to Christ as our treasure. That was really one of the lyrics this morning. Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. You know the parable, right? Matthew, I believe it's Matthew chapter 13. Where the man goes out and he's in the field and he digs up the, the treasure and he buries it back and goes in and he, and he sells all that he has to buy what? To buy the field that has that treasure. It's followed up by another parable that talks about this pearl of great price. And this man has quite a portfolio, but he's willing to sell all of it for the one. The message isn't sell all you have. That's not the message. The message is, are you interested at all in gaining Christ Jesus, knowing that his value never decreases, his worth never diminishes, that having Christ, gaining Christ, is going to be a value for you in this life, right now, and in the life to come. Perhaps a question to ask yourself is, have I seen Jesus as my greatest treasure? Is Jesus my greatest treasure? Is Jesus my pearl of great price? Have I been willing to? Am I today? Am I willing to give up and sacrifice and, as Paul says, suffer the loss of all things for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to do that? Is Christ really worth it? If I believe that gaining Christ far surpasses any loss I might incur in this life, how then do I live my life? How do I live my life? 
Jesus said these words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Remember that? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So your heart's going to follow your treasure. Is Christ your treasure? What does your life have to say about that? Because I do believe if I was to go down the row and I was to ask every single one of you here, I feel like I know each of you fairly well to know that if I asked the question, you would give me a nod of the head and go, yeah, absolutely. But then I wonder, we talked several weeks back about the idea of someone following you with a video camera everywhere that you went. Remember that? And then I wonder if after everybody acknowledging, yes, he's my greatest treasure. Yeah, oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. For the next week, we had a video cameraman following you. Then I would ask the question, does your life reflect and speak to the fact that you have said yes to Christ as your greatest treasure? Would it show on the tape that your life is lived in that way? That you take seriously this idea of gaining Christ? Because you know his worth never fades. His value never diminishes. Is Jesus Christ really worth pursuing? Is Christ really worth living out here in the world? Well, it's from that that I'd like to point you to the text this morning. I just want to give you five words, and we're going to kind of walk through this because this walks through the text. As we think about gaining Christ, and we think about who Christ is and, and why gaining Christ ought to matter in our lives. Rejoicing is going to go with verse 1 in the text. The warning then comes in verse 2. And we see um, identity that's followed in verses 3 and 4. And five and six. Uh, we'll see this example actually in, in five and six. And then seven through 11 is going to be the discovery. It's the discovery. Paul discovers something. And I love the fact that he shares it with us. And he shares it with the church at Philippi. He discovered what he came to know. And it wasn't something that he drudged up all by himself. It was, as he said elsewhere in his letters, by the grace of God, he was able to discover these things. So, this rejoicing. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. It's, it's not troublesome. It's not cause for fear. But for you, it is safe. But for you, it is intended to be a safeguard your faith for me to write these same things to you a couple things I'd like to say as we think about rejoicing I think that's one of the key words it's one of the key words throughout this book of Philippians and if you notice that on the many occasions where he says rejoice in the Lord or something similar he's typically saying that in a context that would and this reminded me of how James uses this in chapter one consider it pure joy in what context? When you encounter trials. Right? You're left scratching your head. Joy and trials. 
What's interesting is that when he brings this up, rejoice in the Lord. Our rejoicing is to be in the Lord. Our rejoicing is not in all of these circumstances that might be favorable to us, but he's trying to root and ground them in their rejoicing. Their rejoicing, their joy is in the Lord. Listen, church, when your joy is in the Lord, no circumstance, no situation is going to be able to pull you into the muck and mire long term because your rejoicing is in the Lord. You have Christ in your life. Remember, you have gained Christ and now you're living differently. Do you know that the evil one is is deemed to be in the scripture? He's deemed to be that one who, one of his greatest exploits, one of the things that he does and does very well is he is a joy robber. Did you know that? He loves to steal your joy. And he'll look for ways and he'll look for opportunities. He'll look for, as the Bible says, these footholds in your life. And he gets a little foothold and he wants to take that foothold and make it a stronghold. For one purpose, being for sure, to just pour a big cold bucket of water on your joy in Christ. And in doing so, he recognizes that you forfeit or give up or lose those opportunities of being a witness to Christ through that hardship, through that difficult time. Here in chapter 3, verse 1, he's beginning by saying, hey, as for the rest, finally, it's not finally as in now I'm done because he's going to give another finally here in chapter 4, verse 8. It's almost a a transition, though, as he brings this forward, this construction in the text. As for the rest, and he goes on, he wants them to know right up front here in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. Let your rejoicing be in the Lord. And he's going to be writing about some, some stuff that's hard. And so, therefore, he wants them right out of the gate to understand their rejoicing is in the Lord, not in their circumstance. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. Warning. You might even put down, if you're writing the word down, you might put warning times three. Or warning to the third power. Right? Some of you are working on uh, powers. This would be a a good example of that. Warning times three. All right? Beware of dogs. Now, can I just real quick, I'm not going to belabor this. I'm not going to go into detail. I know this is hard. This is... For some of you that are especially young, but even some of you adults are going, why is he saying beware of the dogs? Do they bite? Right? What, what's, what's up with the dogs? Why is the description here? Well, the dog was essentially, to the Jew, was like one of the most disgusting creatures, the dog. And, uh, you know, it was just kind of, the dog in that day evidently was like a scavenger, you know, always, always trying to take something, just a, a, a ugly, you know, one of those, uh, maybe you drive by, kind of see a mutt kind of thing, it's off the side of the road, it doesn't really belong to anybody, it's just kind of out there, but it just look, has that look to it, but it's just a meandering uh, creature that's going around to try and devour and steal and take things dirty, filthy, all right, that's kind of the image and the idea, but the Jew would actually refer to the Gentiles as dogs. And they referred to them as dogs, okay? So just put that in your pocket. That's beware of dogs. Beware of those scavengers, those scoundrels. Beware of evil workers. 
There are those who do good works. The warning here is those who are carrying out evil works. As we've already seen in chapter 1, there were some, while Paul is in prison, some were preaching Christ, trying to add affliction to Paul while he's in his chains. Interestingly enough, they're preaching Christ, not necessarily wrong doctrine per se, but they're preaching Christ with a certain motivation to squash Paul even further while he's in prison. Beware of evil workers, those who are out perhaps for their own personal gain. Those who are out not to advance the gospel, right? Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. The Bible says in in, in Romans chapter 12 that we are to um, cling to what is good and we are to abhor or hate what is evil, right? Here's the third warning. Beware of the mutilation. Isn't it interesting? I mean, you read this verse and it's like, man, this is, this is hard and it's hard to hear. It's hard to understand, really. But really, the, the word mutilation is, is kind of a, a play on words in the original language with the word that comes in verse 3, circumcision. Okay? Mutilation and circumcision. They both have to do with a cutting. But essentially, he's talking about here this mutilation as he's warning them. Beware! Uh, by the way, this, this word has in mind to, to be constantly on the lookout for. This is a continual be on the lookout. Continually be watching for these dogs. Continually be on. And by the way, doesn't this go hand in hand with how we're to be living in general in Christ? To be watchful, to be alert. Do you remember the passage in, in Peter chapter 5 that talks about one of the reasons why we're to be watchful and alert because our enemy, the devil, is prowling around? What is he doing? Just like these dogs, what, what is he doing? He's looking for someone to devour. Who are the most likely candidates, church, for being devoured? Those who are not watchful. <laughs> Those who are not Serious about gaining Christ, holding on to Christ, holding on to the truth of his word, seeing that it's deeply planted in us. Beware, be constantly on the lookout for those who are, the mutilation would be those folks, uh, we we tend to think based on the warnings here, these are um, Jewish uh, folks. Uh, Some would say Judaizers, some who are impressing upon uh, those in the church at Philippi, the need to, uh, the Judaizers, one of the things they were very good at was seeing that, hey, you have to first be circumcised in the flesh if you, you got to go, in other words, you got to go through the door of Judaism before you get to Christ. You can't get in the door with Christ until you open the door and you are circumcised. Circumcision is the key. So we said, beware of those folks. Beware of those folks who are all about just getting you converted. Their own definition of converted. All right, do you see the warnings here? There's three of them. Beware. The first one is kind of a characteristic of who these are, these dogs. He's describing them in not a very kind way. Beware of the evil workers. Know their schemes. Isn't that what we're called to in the Bible about the evil one? Know know the schemes. And know that this is not just simply about being converted 
And, and in the Judaizers' way of being converted was the, this stamp of approval that had to be in place. In order for you to be in Christ, considered to be a Christ follower, you had to be circumcised. Well, Paul's really quick about turning the corner on this one after the warning. And he goes right to identity. Identity. And we see this here in 3 and, and verse 4. For we are the circumcision. We, that's the editorial we. We, Paul, the church at Philippi, and by extension all of those who would agree with Paul and the church at Philippi on the truth of Jesus Christ, we are the circumcision. Now he's going to identify who the circumcision is. In, in one way we could say in verse 2 is bringing out uh, the false circumcision. And verse 3 is really the true circumcision. Who are these true circumcisions? He goes on and he describes them. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. The word worship here is the word uh, latruo. comes from the verb latruo, which really is a word that's been used already here talking about serving God. Really, it was a word that was used by the high priest in the Old Testament. It was, it was a structured uh, uh, situation where the priests it, it described their work as unto the Lord. So when it says, and it's defining and identifying who we are, who, who we are, the circumcision. We're, we're ones who serve God in the Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit. We're not serving, as Paul says elsewhere, according to the flesh. We're not debtors to the flesh. We're not serving the flesh. We know that serving the flesh, what it leads to. The Bible tells us when we reap according to the flesh, when we sow according to the flesh, we're going to reap what? Destruction. Okay? And he's going somewhere with this. So as he's identifying, he's, he's saying, first of all, we are ones who worship God by means of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the circumcision, we are those who rejoice in Christ Jesus. If you um, have a translation, perhaps the word instead of rejoice here is boast. That's really the word, is boast. Paul uses those interchangeably in different contexts. I will boast in my Lord, at the end of Galatians, I love what he says at the end of Galatians uh, in chapter 6. He says in verse 14, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, I'll read 15, listen to this. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So, identifying. Who are we? The circumcision. Who are we? We're ones who worship or serve God in the Spirit, according to the Spirit. We are rejoicing in Christ Jesus. We're boasting. Our boast is in Christ. It's not in anything we've done. In fact, he goes on and he says, and have no confidence in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. He's identifying who we are. We are a people who have no confidence Confidence here is a word that has in mind a settled persuasion. We have no persuasion that this is something that we've done. We have no settled persuasion that um, raising up this idea of, as verse 2, these people, the mutilation, this is not of, of, of great value to us. Our boast is in Christ because we understand what Christ has done. Christ has finished the work. It's not about my work and what I do, as some were professing and teaching. 
Paul is saying here in verse 3 and verse 4, as he's speaking to identity, he's saying, this is who we are. He's trying to help the church understand this. And let's get clear. This is who we are. We are not like those in verse 2. Thus the warning. 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 How many of you dads and moms give your children warnings? Why do we give warnings? We give them warnings because it's best that you ought not, young people, do these things. It's best not only that you not do these things, but if you do these things, it's important you know where this leads. It's important you know because I love you. I don't want to see you get hurt. I, I love you. Therefore, don't go running and playing out in the street. I love you. Therefore, don't touch the stove that has the red on the burner. Right? That's why we do some of these things. Warning. And he's identifying now who we are. And he's contrasting in his identity. He's contrasting these other folks that he's warning against in verse 2. Now, he goes on in verse 4. After having just talked about having no confidence in the flesh. He says, it's almost like he, as he gets to this point, he starts to think about it a little bit more. I love this part of the passage. Because it's out of this part of the passage that the rest of it just kind of flows. He says in verse 4, and this ties into the example on the outline here. Okay, from warning to identity in verse 3, and and really looking at the example in verses 4, 5, and 6. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now, some of, us, some of us read this and we go, man, Paul is full of himself. What's he doing? Why is he going here? I think he's trying to help his readers understand. And perhaps as it's being read, maybe there's some other folks who happen, happen to fall into category verse 2. Maybe they would actually hear some of these words too and come to understand the folly of pursuing these things that they've been pursuing in verse 2. But it's almost as though he's saying, hey, here's who we are. Here's our identity in verse 3. And we have no confidence in the flesh. Though I'm also might... By the way, there's several particles at the beginning that he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing that in his own life, He's putting himself not up on a pedestal, but he's putting himself forward as an example to say, hey, look, you want to rely upon something? You want to to think about all these things that you can put your confidence in? I'm an example. I'm an exhibit A of all these things in my life that I used to stand upon. And let me tell you, I got quite a list. It's almost like you take one of them big scrolls and he just like, and he unravels it. And he starts beginning to share with them the example from his own life. Look at it. Here it is. He says, I, I, I'm more so. You, you think you got confidence in the flesh? I, I've got more. Let me tell you my titles. It's, like, it's, it's almost like at this point, Paul is saying, hey, you think you've got a lot of trophies? You think you've got a lot of accolades? I'll show you my list. And he's saying, let me show you my list, not because he thinks he's great. He's showing them his list because he wants them to see the magnitude of his list. And he wants them to see that he has set aside all of this stuff. And he wants them to see that setting aside all of their stuff 
It's the greatest gain they'll ever come to see in their life. So by far, no, he's not boasting in himself. He's still boasting in the Lord, but he's showing them through his example. And so that's where we go in verse uh, 5. In 5 and 6, there's there's seven different things here. The first four on the list touch on his ancestry and his birth. Things really, in large part, he had nothing to do with. And then the last three had a lot to do with him. But the last three had a lot to do with who he was before he came to discover Christ. So look at the list. Circumcised the eighth day. Uh, literally, he's an eight. He's an eight dayer. That's kind of what the what the rendering is there. An eight dayer. That was you know the Jews were you know it was typical for the Jews to on the eighth day after birth to be circumcised, right? Set apart of the stock of Israel, of the stock of Israel, um, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's interesting to me is he's writing to the church at Philippi, and I, I don't know if the church at Philippi, how many of those people actually had heard of Benjamin or not, but, but you and I have heard of Benjamin, and we know that Benjamin is one of those chosen tribes with Judah. I mean, those were two pretty important tribes. In fact, he mentions in Romans chapter 11 the fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin as well. It seems like the tribe of Benjamin, that, that designation is a pretty significant des- designation, being of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on and he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he spoke the language. He grew up. He had Jewish parents. He, he, he had it from an early age. And in fact, not only did he have the parents, but he also had the education because he was trained and tooled by Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was known in the day as one of the best teachers of the law. Paul studied under him. He's got quite a list of accolades here. And he's showing... Here's, look, look what I had. I have, you think you've got a lot of things that you can rely on and depend on and have confidence in? I've got a whole lot more things that, that let me show you. Let me show you, and I'm going to show you, and then I'm going to just burn them all up, essentially, and I'm going to let you know. I set them all aside. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You remember that? Remember he was dragging people off and bringing them and sentencing them to death? Yeah, he was zealous, all right. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Oh, I skipped the one at the end of five. Concerning the law, a Pharisee, every dot and me, Paul knew the law. He knew it. And the, the, the best that he could, he endeavored to keep the law, to carry out the law. So he shows this example. And here is is the remainder, which I believe the heart of the passage in 7 through 11. After unveiling his list, giving his life example, his portfolio, he just lays it all out there. And then we get a but in verse 7. But, but what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. Here's what I used to hold on to. Right? Verses 5 and 6. 
Here's what I'm now holding on to, and this is what it's going to be describing in 7 through 11. What things were gained to me, verses 5 and 6, that quite impressive list. These I've counted loss for Christ. I have counted loss. It's in an aorist tense, which means... um, I have counted, in the past, I've counted loss. At the point in time when the Lord blinded me and set me on his course, on his path, I have counted, back then, I counted loss, all these things. But the idea of this particular tense also has in mind a present result. So I have back then counted those things loss, and I am yet today also counting them loss. I've counted them loss. For the sake of Christ. He notches this up once we get to verse 8. Yet indeed I also. It's almost, this is almost, this is filled with a lot of um, uh, particles as well to kind of emphasize some things. Another way to translate this, another way to think about verse 8. You know how when you read through the book of Romans, um, you get a lot of times, you get... um, his, his phrase, and more than that, or much more, and much more than that. There's something greater. And here in verse 8, it's almost as though he's saying yes to verse 7. But then he's also wanting us to see and to hear. There's so much more than this impressive list I've just given you, my example in life. There's so much more. And he goes on and tells us what that more is in verse 8. Indeed, I also count all things. You might underline all things. I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now we stop there for just a moment. As we think about this discovery, this discovery, by the way, is not something that, you know, that happens on our own, right? Uh, we're saved by grace through faith, that not of our own, lest any one of us should boast in ourselves. But Paul understood this idea of righteousness. He's going to talk about this righteousness that for a long while in his life, it was a righteousness that came by the law, by the law. By the book of the law, as a, just everything by the law, by the book. And he's going to come to see that um, he, he kind of did an exchange, if you will, a transaction. And the Lord really was the primary one doing that transaction in his life. And so this discovery, it's important we understand this discovery. This is a rich discovery. This is a wonderful discovery. And it's a discovery that's wonderful for every single one of us here and it's a, it's a discovery that I hope and pray every one of you come to of gaining Christ and realizing that all this other stuff, all of the other accolades, all of the letters behind your name, all, fill in the blank, all these things. You can come up with your own list like Paul did, your life example. These are all things that used to be all, all really important to me. When you gain Christ, church, those things all of a sudden... As the Course says, they dim and lose their value if we regard their borrowed for a while, right? I was reminded of this, and um, 
I have a, uh, a, a quite an old box. Some of you probably recognize this kind of a box. For those that don't, um, I open it up and it probably dust it off. I, I, it's, a, uh, it's an old baseball card. Fleer, Fle- I don't even know if Fleer is still around today. Anybody still do baseball cards today? Is Fleer still around? I don't know. An old baseball card, complete baseball card set. You know, there was a day, I think it was back when I was in high school, and a part-time job. There was a gentleman that lived in my neighborhood that I, in fact, he was, uh, I think he was doing ministry at the time, and in his garage, he had set up in his garage a whole bunch of baseball cards. He was a collector. And I had, as a part-time job, as a high school student, I got paid $2 an hour to sort his cards. And I loved every bit of it. In fact, I collected enough money to be able to buy my first set of cards. In fact, I think it's on here somewhere. Look, it's still there, the original tag. 1983 Fleer set. The set was $12 back in 1983. And I would imagine, I haven't looked at anything, but I would imagine it's worth a little more than $12 today. Why am I showing you this? There was a day, this was so important to me. There was a day when, wow, I look forward to going and sorting those cards and being a part of that. Using my small amount of money to purchase some cards. Held it in high value and esteem. And maybe for some of you, maybe it's not baseball cards. But I would venture to say there's something in your life that you have held on to that was nostalgic, that was very important to you. And perhaps once you gain Christ in your life, and over a period of time, you've come to see that the thing that used to excite you no longer does. Why? In short, that's called sanctification, where God is setting you apart from the very things that you used to grab a hold of and have a tight grip on. And over time, the Lord is loosening your grip on those things, pulling you away from those things, helping you to see that He's all you need. What things were gained... These I've counted for loss, yet indeed I also count all things loss. For the surpassing greatness or knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice here's another notch in it. For whom I have suffered the loss. See, it's not just that he's this prophet lost. I've lost something. But he says, for Christ, I've suffered loss. When you suffer something, it's one thing to lose it. You can't find it. No, but when you suffer for losing it, there's something there. There's an extra little measure there. And he says, for Christ's sake, I've suffered. Can't we, as we read the book of Philippians, get that? Because where is he as he's writing? He's in prison. He is suffering. He is suffering for for, for forsaking all of these other things. For the sake of Christ, I've suffered loss of all things. Not just the list in 5 and 6, but he's telling them all things. This cranks it up even more, the end of verse 8. 
not only have I suffered loss for all of these things and count all of these things loss for the sake of knowing Christ my Lord, but I even count these things now as rubbish. Literally, I think the King James has this spot on. Dung. Yeah, excrement. It was excess animal stuff that wasn't usable for anything really good. He counts all of this stuff as filthy, as worthless, as valueless in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus. He's not saying that all of this stuff, throw it away, don't ever use it. That's not what no, he's saying. He's saying he's making a comparison. All of this stuff is worthless compared to Christ, knowing Christ that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, that's a passive rendering there. He wants to be found in him. And no doubt the Lord knows those who are his. I do believe the rendering here leads us to believe that Paul wanted to make it very clear with his life that to other people he would surround himself with, that they would be able to effectively identify him as one in Christ. He wanted to gain Christ and be found in him so that when others are looking, they're able to see and identify there's a follower of Jesus. Oh, that's a great application for all of us. Because it's one thing to just gain Christ in our life and, and, and yes, we've got Christ. You and I both know it's something different to live that. And he's already talked about how we are stars and we are intended to be stars shining as light in a world that is dark, a perverse and wicked generation. We need to be shining and I pray we need to be found and understand our need to be found in Christ. And Paul says in verse 9, and this discovery, not having my own righteousness, this righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. And doesn't this tie in, church, to uh, the passage in, in Romans? He talks about this very same thing in chapter 3, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. This is the righteousness he's speaking, the standing that he's speaking of. He exchanged this righteousness of his own, which was found in the law, for a righteousness that was from God by faith in Christ Jesus, God's son. There's much that he's gained. In verses 10 and 11, he says that I may know him. I believe this is connected to the first part of verse 8. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. It's another purpose. That I may know him. That I may know him experientially. That I may know him. Not just someday in heaven and be able to see him. But that I may know him right now. Coupled with knowing him. Is also knowing Wanting, desiring his power. The power. What kind of power? It's the power, he says, the power of his resurrection. 
Paul desires for that power to be alive and well and working in him as he's living here and now. That kind of power. That kind of power his desire is to work in him. Coupled with that power, he says, and the fellowship. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, the koinonia of his sufferings. This is not necessarily talking about participating in his crucifixion, if you will, his suffering. No, I believe here he's talking about participating in his suffering, this fellowship with his suffering. It's really what he's talking about in Colossians 1.24, of being a partaker, filling up in his flesh the things that were lacking in Christ, he says in, in Colossians 1.24. It's in the day today. His desire is to partner with Christ in such a way. And I think he's given us a very clear message here. Gaining Christ involves and includes suffering, friends. It's, it's being willing to partake with Jesus Christ in suffering, in this life. I want the power. Listen, I want to know him and I want to know the power. Notice the, the order. The suffering comes last in that order. And I believe that, that Paul is asking for the power of the resurrection in order that he might then be able to go through the suffering. It's hard to go through suffering when we don't have his power operating, working in us. We're just about done. Being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death in in the same form as being in the form together. This reminds me of what Paul says all the time, especially in the book of Romans. This union with Christ. Being conformed to his death. We talk about in Romans 6 all the time. Uh, we, we read that passage and we, and we talk about it and it has that symbolism of baptism. But really it's rooted in our union with Christ. We've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And what does it mean to be raised with Christ, church? It means to, as he says in Romans, that we are to walk in newness of life. And this is a wonderful discovery. That when we come to understand Christ and we gain Christ... And we see this discovery that's ours. What we come to see and understand is that being in Christ means that not only we die with Christ, we've been crucified with Christ, the Bible says, but we've also been buried and now we've been raised to walk in newness of life. How, friends, do we walk in that newness of life? Knowing him, having his power, being willing to have fellowship in his sufferings. We are participating with him. We are, as Peter says, divine partakers. <laughs> Pray that that's our joy and delight to be able to do so. Christ is our greatest gain. Only one life to soon be passed. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world, now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bring thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And here's the last stanza of the poem. Only one life, twill soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Spending all we have for the sake of Christ. Gaining Christ. Rejoicing in the Lord. Warning, warning, warning. Those warnings were specific to the church at Philippi, but friends, you and I both know there are a lot of warnings that we have for us today. We need to be aware of the evil one's schemes today. We need to know how and who we are in Christ Jesus. And we need to be able to identify to others. We, we need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe, but we need to know who it is we believe in. This ties into our example. We take all the things that we've done and we see our life and we lay that before and we're able to show with our life, hey, this is what we've done, but you know what? I'm setting that all to the side. It's, it's sort of like what Christ himself modeled in, in, in chapter 2 of Philippians. He set his rights aside and became obedient to death on the cross for our sake. Our lives now are lived in such a way when we gain Christ that we become, uh, we imitate Christ in that way and become that example to others. Because when we've discovered the greatest treasure there is, others need to know about it. Others also need to be able to see it. I think that's what Paul is putting forth here. C.T. Studd had one other quote that I'll leave you with that I very much appreciated, again, as it ties into chapter 3 here of Philippians. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good word. I thank you for this passage of scripture that teaches us and shows us, Lord, what's of value in this life. And Paul is putting before the church at Philippi uh, his own life as an example. And we know his story well. We know his conversion very well. Acts 9. We know, Lord, how you got his attention. Lord, when you got his attention, we're able to see from Acts 9 forward the difference Christ made in his life. And I would ask, Lord, of all of us here today that is our life making that kind of difference for the gospel? And Lord, if not, I pray that you would grant us grace, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment, that you would give us courage to lay down those things that we have been holding on to those things that we have prided ourselves in for so long that we would put them to the side, that we would count them in comparison, count them as rubbish for Christ's sake, that we may be found in Him, that others would be able to identify us as a Christ follower. And Lord, in doing all of this, I pray that you would get great glory. As we've read in Philippians, this is about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not about us. 
May we use the time that we've been given here to bring you glory, to lift your name on high in all things. Thank you, Father, for your good news that we have here in the scriptures. We rejoice in Christ, our Redeemer. It's in his name we pray. Amen.